Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. The show goes on. The official show on the Fish Stripes Podcast channel. I'm Eli Sussman, once again with my deputy editor, Louis Adia Weiss, talking about Marlins offseason shopping. Before this, a couple programming notes on the channel. Um, well, I guess first with Fish Stripes Live, we're still doing that on Wednesday nights. So we got another one of those shows coming up, hopefully, right after you listen to this. Check us out on YouTube, Twitter, and Twitch, and those. Recordings are available afterwards if you missed the live show. On the same podcast feed on Thursday, I was joined by, I guess, our, our biggest guest ever on the podcast, Keith Law of The Athletic, longtime ESPN writer before that, uh, someone that I'm sure all of you already follow on Twitter. You, you know him as just a prospect expert and just general baseball savant of sorts and he gave me a half hour of his time that will warm us up for the marlins offseason so we're publishing that right after the world series ends and before that we're sticking with our regularly scheduled series here this is aisle four of offseason shopping this is back for the fourth straight week breaking down players either trade candidates or free agents that we think are great fits with the marlins this offseason Going in ascending order by baseball reference, wins above replacement, building it up from guys that were shaky this past year to ones that were decent, to ones that were solid, to ones that were just straight up good. We are, this is going to be the second to last episode of the series now, looking at players between 3.1 and 4.0 baseball reference war this past year. Guys that were any way you sliced it, like strong performers and ones that, undoubtedly would make the Marlins better. So, Lewis, we uh, we get to talk about good players. Um, we, we, put, we put in the time. We put in several hours on this pod to finally get to this point where these are these are all-stars. These are potentially better than all-stars. It's an exciting group, even though it's still a pretty narrow band of, of players. Yeah, you kind of have people all across the spectrum of guys who are sort of up and coming. There's even some guys maybe on both of our lists that were even better than this at one point and then kind of had their, you know, ups and downs. And then they rekindled a lot of that, some of that magic that they previously had and kind of would maybe fit on this roster in 2022. Uh, if you want me to get started, the first one I'm going to come out with, it's a little weird. I know we were kind of, our focus is war for the past particular season that we're focusing on, which is isolated to 2021. But for this guy, and again, I'm gonna. I will preface too by saying that I don't think it's will 
ideal for him to maybe end up here or that he, you know, he'll fall into our laps. But I'm going to I'm going to look at his last full season as far as qualifications for him possibly fitting here. I mean, Justin Verlander as somebody coming off major, major, major surgery. You know, we've heard about the possibility that he could go back to Houston. There, AJ Hinch is in Detroit. He pitched for Hinch 2017 through 19 in Houston. Could go back there to maybe finish off his career. But I've always kind of said, and this isn't to take anything away from Alexis Sandy Alcantara, who I think at this point is an established veteran in the major leagues and among the better pitchers in the sport. I still think young pitchers can learn off a guy like Verlander. If we saw how he went about, you know, being that vocal leader in Detroit for kind of helping nurture guys like Scherzer as they took their lumps at the big league level, Doug Fister when he came over, Rick Porcello who went on to have a long big league career. I think stuff like that is, you know, you're paying obviously for him to perform on the mound, but what he gives you as a member of the clubhouse and just an ambassador for the sport, I think kind of goes beyond the sheer performance. And again, little we forget the last time he was on the mound as a full-time starting pitcher because he missed most of 2020, he made one start, then he had Tommy John. Guy won the Cy Young Award in the the American League. He threw his third no-hitter. He struck out 300 batters. He's one of the last of the dying breed of workhorses, you know, through 223 innings. The guy is 12 innings shy of 3,000 for his career. He's a first ballot Hall of Famer if he retires today. I know he doesn't necessarily meet the criteria of 3.1 to 4 point, to four baseball reference war, but when you look at a guy who's coming off of injury and you know we're talking about somebody who has a track record of success, I don't really think, you know, other than maybe Granky, as far as pitchers who are going to be available on this market, there's guys that have a sustained level of success the way that Verlander does. Again, I know it's weird, but you know, give me some it, of your takes on it, it's an market. enticing name. I thought you got really creative to squeeze him onto here because as you said, I mean the last two seasons he's, he hasn't pitched at all last year and they barely pitched here before. So I thought you would you would like shoehorn him into the next episode, which is when we go like four and up. It's hard to to see like that happening just because I, I think his market is going to be extremely strong. Tommy John surgery is not quite the the big crisis that it used to be and for for someone that prior to his Tommy John for most of his career he just had a really remarkable run of being durable that he's going to get a very hefty annual annual value on the deal whether it's a one-year deal or maybe even like a two-year deal um for someone with with his track record I, w- I wouldn't be surprised by that so in terms of being like likely to happen I'd put this at pretty close to zero I, whether it should happen, I mean, that's a, that's another question. I think that it goes a long way towards strengthening a strength to reinforcing what we already consider to be such a, a promising aspect of this team, the starting rotation, and to have a guy that even more so than Sandy, if that's possible, he had that he was the one of the ultimate preeminent workhorses in baseball. To have that that peace of mind that he took an extra long time to recover from this Tommy John uh, more than a year and a half by the time we open up next year. So with that being said, he should have almost no restrictions. You would think. And I'm not going to put it past Verlander to put up, you know, because ideally he probably has, you know, three, two, three years of his lucky left given the amount of miles on his arm, given the age. Do I think he's a guy that could pitch into his forties? Yeah. And he's openly said that he wants to, but I think at this stage of his career, especially coming off a major injury, I ideally I think he kind of sits in this three to four win category. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. There's guys on this list that we're gonna probably bring up that are starting pitchers. I don't know what you have because I, you know, I haven't perused your list prior to us, you know, talking tonight. That you know, those are all star kind of caliber pitchers. If you're putting up, you know, three four WAR in a season. But it also is just a testament to where Verlander's kind of been in the past. And, you know, even if you're declining at three, four war season, nothing, I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, especially if you're kind of coming in as almost like a mentor type to this young rotation who, as you've stated, and as a lot of us understand, you know, watching this team, one of the strengths is this starting pitching that we kind of have, you know, guys like Rock, Trevor and Sandy and obviously Pablo and 
Eliezer at times. You know, it, it definitely a wild card pick, but again, just what he brings beyond, you know, the body of work kind of speaks for itself. I will pivot to a name that I think is one that was on top of every listener's minds going into this when they saw the criteria because he's already been connected to the team by by several reporters already, and that's Nick Castellanos from the Cincinnati Reds. Our first crossover. Yeah, who has South Florida native, not a Miami native. People like to call him a hometown kid, and that's, that's not exactly true. He's a little bit north of Miami growing up. He was uh, almost from the start of his big league career. He was a solid hitter for Detroit year after year after year. But he really took off once it got traded in 2019 to the National League. First the Cubs and then got signed by the Reds. Overall, if you like, just look at how he's performed over the last, I guess it shakes out to be, being about 250 games after he got traded out of Comerica Park and to more hitter-friendly environments. He's a top 15 hitter in baseball, right around there, like top 15. You can make the argument top 10. Maybe you're a little skeptical of him and you say top 20, but he is certainly better than any of the hitters that have been on the Marlins during this rebuild. This is a man who deserves to be in the MVP conversation. And he has often shined brightest in the biggest spots. Bases loaded, down two. Oh, one. In the air, center field, stumble to start for Herrera, streaks back. Gone! A grand slam! We think highly of what Starling Marte did for the Marlins. We've seen great flashes of Garrett Cooper. And I mean, Nick Castellanos is like is a half step better than them as a hitter because of how much impact he makes as an extra base hit machine, especially when he was playing in Cincinnati, going deep to all fields. Um, and I guess just to put the war number out there this past season, 3.7 baseball reference war. And that's even with the perception that he's not a great defender. That's I, that's the first thing people would the question with him is exactly where he fits defensively where right field has been his main position the second half of his career third base was his position the first half of his career in between he's played little doses of left field uh, not really significant enough to get a feel as to how he fits in there when you're signing him to like a contract he's going to be a free agent we expect two years left on his deal at the moment but it's a certainty that he's going to opt out of that deal and test free agency which means that he's going to be looking for a free agent deal that's easily three years and more likely to be four-ish years, something like that. At It's going to be a big investment. It's going to be somewhere north of $80 million, I would think. We'll see exactly how it plays out. Um, with so many big names in this free agent market, maybe he turns out to be a guy that slips down a little bit because of his less valuable less valuable aspects as a base runner and as a defender just as a bat alone. And he's, he's had now two years of a hundred plus RBIs and he's had one, two, three, four, four different years where he's been at least an OPS plus of 120 or higher, like dramatically above the league average as a hitter. He, and he does it without striking out that much. He does it really consistently within seasons. This most recent year, he was so consistent for the Reds all year long, even more so than Joey Votto, even more so than Jesse Winker. He had a lot of offensive talent around him, and he was the most steady hitter that they had in the middle of that lineup to keep the Reds kind of within striking distance, even what was a disappointing season overall. Super yeah. solid player heading into his age 30 season, and we know, we feel that the Marlins are very interested if you go by reporting that Craig Mish has put out there and just some common sense that the Marlins need a bat and they can't be super picky about the position. He's going to be available. And I would be really surprised if they don't at least engage in some sort That's of conversations with of the 2021 Scott season. Ricelli yeah, Blasius I mean, puts a nice bow tie on a fabulous individual performance. And the Angels so take two out of three from a team that was in contention until the very end the to wrap up their season schedule. Playing three and a half of those seasons in Detroit, which is 
you know, historically a very pitcher friendly ballpark. It suppresses a lot of offense. We saw that with guys like Prince Fielder and, and then obviously Miguel, Miguel Cabrera defied that a little bit. But his his triple slash line since the start of 2016, 286, 338, 515. That's a 122 OPS plus. That's an 853 OPS. And, you know, it looks a little bit better if the defense is better. And, you know, you spoke previously about his shortcomings as a defender. I think the offense offsets at some point, but eventually he's going to be one of those guys who, you know, at best – he probably winds up an American League team. I, I again, that's not me saying I wouldn't love him, but this is also us speaking without a universal DH in place, and we kind of hope, you know, that that comes to terms to where the new CBA outlines that hey, like pitchers shouldn't be hitting anymore. It's bad for the game. We're trying to get more offense back, but yet we send up, you know, guys one out of nine times, two to three, sometimes three times a night to essentially just stand there and strike out, and maybe occasionally they'll put a ball in play. But Castellanos, I think, you know, plays best where he has a pl- uh, a chance to get consistent at-bats at DH. I mean, for maybe the next year or two, he won't hurt you that bad in the corner outfield spots. But then again, you know, you also have the fact that the Marlins have guys like Jesus Sanchez, who impressed a lot last year, but I, that isn't to say that they wouldn't say, hey, like maybe move Sanchez to left and you know, De La Cruz would have to stay in center. Should they not go out and get a center fielder? And Castellanos kind of just slots in as their everyday right fielder. Um, the one, one thing I do have concerns about, too, is maybe the walk rate isn't the best. Right. You know, a 338 on base percentage is so respectable, especially when you're slugging over 500. He only finished in the 25th percentile on walk rate, so he was among the bottom quarter of hitters as far as it comes in taking walks. 15% in whiff rate, uh, 5% in chase rate, and outs above average. Uh, outfield defense we talked about previously is only in the 7th percentile, and average outfield jump, so he doesn't really, you know, he's, he doesn't really get the best jumps on balls. And that, you know, that could factor down to a lot of things like range and where he's positioned and stuff, you know, whether how much he reads his cue cards that he holds on with him. But, you know, you kind of pointed out four years, possibly maybe $20 million a year. I think ideally he is kind of looking for something like a $4 million raise and essentially just an extra year with, you know, an, of an additional money because he got four for 64 with Cincinnati. Yeah. So he probably wants to up the AAV a little bit. You know, he's averaging 24 home runs, 76 RBIs a year, despite, you know, the last two years being hundred RBIs. Again, that's a very good player and you don't always need to win a world series with guys putting up, you know, 35 and a hundred if you're surrounded by a consist a group of consistently good average to slightly above average offensive players. So, I mean, it's a win if you acquire a guy like that. The question is, you know, how is he going to aid for you and what do you do with him when the defense further erodes, which, you know, we've kind of seen since the start of his career kind of has progressively. Yeah. Uh, the next guy I want to mention, and I'll kind of revert back to starting pitching. And this is a, this is going to be our first trade candidate. Because as we said, Cassianos is likely to out there the last two years of his deal. I think this team has a lot of, you know, they have a wealth of starting pitching, probably the best rotation in the National League other than the Dodgers in 2021. He's got a very team-friendly contract, and I know Miami has it as a strength, but we've also seen at times when something that has hurt them beyond uh, guys not staying healthy, when guys like Pablo got hurt or, you know, Rodgers had missed some time for some personal reasons. The depth arms didn't necessarily do all that much. I mean, we saw Braxton Garrett and guys like Cody Fotini. Yeah, that's putting it very politely. Yeah, they had their struggles, especially with, like, keeping runners off base. I mean, I believe Garrett finished with a whip near two in his 30.2 thirds innings pitch, a 1.84 whip. Call me crazy, but a guy like Freddie Peralta may cost a lot, especially when you consider that the team, if he is to be traded and the Brewers aren't a big market team, so they, you know, wouldn't exactly be ignorant to doing something like this. Eli, he's got a five, current, his current contract is five years, 15 and a half million dollars. That's through 2020 to 2024. So the team requires him has three years of club control. Mind you too, he, should he continue to pitch with that one team that he stays with, whether it's the Brewers or someone else, he has two team options for eight million dollars, and this is a guy who put up a one, he put up 195 strikeouts and just 144 innings pitch 
281 ERA, 3.7 baseball reference war. For his career, he has a propensity to miss bats. He, like, religiously strikes out more than 10 batters for nine innings. 337 innings pitch, 12.1 Ks for nine. Impressive, too, when you consider that you're playing in Milwaukee, you know, a hitter-friendly park. And granted, some hitters may go into Milwaukee and be like, oh, my God, like, I love to hit here. So, you know, probably guys are more inclined to try to swing for the long ball, which helps him a little bit, but a 1.148 whip. So he's really not allowing a lot. I believe his career hits per nine is under seven in 337 innings. You know, that's a pretty good stretch of, you know, of pitching to where you're kind of just a really good pitcher. And, you know, I was thinking about guys who could maybe serve as possible return or and at least be attractive. Uh, you know, you could talk about your Max Myers, and I know some of us aren't exactly the highest on him, though he was quietly incredible this year in the minor leagues across multiple levels. The You know, we traded Yelich over there prior to the 2018 season, and then he went on to win the MVP and then finished second the following year. J.J. Blade, who's having an excellent Arizona Fall League, you know, is it too early to give up on him and possibly dangle him as a piece to get a guy like Peralta? Maybe. We, I mean, you still want the position player court of flounder, and, you know, we have some early returns with guys like De La Cruz and and Sanchez to a degree. But if you can acquire a starting pitcher like that who's that affordable, especially when you have a guy like Pablo Lopez, who as good as he's been the last couple of seasons, has some concerns, especially with the shoulder. I mean, he did miss some time with some arm injuries last year. Eliezer wasn't healthy. I believe he had some biceps tendonitis that he or inflammation that he suffered at one point early in the season and which caused him to miss extended time. Peralta, I think, is, you know, it's one thing to say that he can pitch in a ballpark like uh, Milwaukee, but then when you, you translate those numbers possibly over to Miami, another pitcher, uh, a pitcher-friendly ballpark in contrast, you know, I think that, you know, the sky's the limit that he can possibly be even better if you especially give him 180 innings, you know, five, six more worth of pitching for a guy like that who's making – $3 million a year. I mean, you can sign me up for that any day of the week. Well, we're on the same wavelength. I'll say very similar. We, this is not an overlap though. I wasn't thinking Peralta. Uh, I guess I'll be concise. I just don't think he'll be available on that type of incredible deal. It is an incredible would, value coming, would be enormous coming sure. off the year that he, he had. So it's difficult for me to see the Brewers trading him because of exactly where they are, where they still feel they, have plenty of juice left in their contending team. And it's just, I mean, it's astounding that it's another five years of control on super efficient terms all those years with those last two, as you said, being not even guaranteed in case something goes wrong. So I can't even like put myself in, in the mindset of him being available, but I am sticking with the Brewers and I'm sticking with another guy on the Brewers that like Peralta, super effective, and he does it as an extreme fly ball pitcher, which stood out to me as if you're talking about guys that would translate really well to Miami, it'd be guys that of course miss bats, but even when they do allow contact, it's in the air and the different environmental factors in Miami, as we know, it suppresses home runs and they could be even more effective for the Marlins than they were with their previous teams. So I've no doubt that if they somehow like were able to find common ground to get somebody like Peralta, he would be, effective very successful i also think in a very different role that josh Hader would be an awesome closer to watch the next couple of years for this marlins team that has just had this carousel of closers we know that Hader, going back i think just last offseason that he was reportedly available in trade talks that the brewers were considering trading him back then and i imagine now he's got two years left of control to go that they'll once again at least explore possibilities to do creative things there. I mean, his numbers this year may have gone under the radar that this was about as good as he's ever been. And he has been almost like consistently throughout these, uh, these five years, he's been a great reliever, but even more so this past year than in any other year, 1.23 ERA in 60 games, 102 strikeouts out of the pen. Who did we bring up uh, on the previous five? We brought up Rysel Iglesias as a guy like this, but Hader, I mean, he misses, he misses bats at even a higher clip based on the number of innings that he threw. Uh, I did mention the fly ball tendencies because a couple of years ago, he did have a home run problem. There was even one particular game I remember against the Marlins where it was it was Starling Castro and maybe somebody else that both took him deep 
you know, like a meaningless game down the stretch in 2019. And he had 15 home runs a couple of years ago, but only three this past year in 58 and two thirds innings. That's insane when you consider that he's not really putting guys on base in the first place, just uh, pure dominance. So he's a, he's a three time all-star. He is projected in arbitration by MLB trade rumors. So go for about $10 million in salary next year, and then we'll get a pay raise on top of that. in his final year of our eligibility, then again, we did bring up players like Russell Iglesias last episode, and he'd be even more expensive than Hater. Hater is actually a bargain compared to that for somebody that you, you tie all this stuff together. And as good as he has been, the limitations in his role, I think, would allow you to acquire him without having to give up a Max Meyer or even a J.J. Bleday. They'd have to give up several good prospects in their system, no doubt, and they'd have to be really one of the big impetuses of this deal from the Brewers perspective is cutting some salary. So the Marlins would have to be of that mindset of getting ready to pay, you know, an eight figure salary to a reliever, which is not something they've shown a willingness to do yet in a handful of years. This would be someone to make an exception for, I think. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Yeah, we especially you mentioned Rysel Iglesias. I think him and Hader are, you know, if Hader is dangled on the trade market, and we remember he, it was last year he was almost the Dodgers were almost had a deal in place for him. They wound up getting Corey Knable, but they were in serious talks with the Dodgers to kind of further help him build a Super Bowl pin. Which, you know, at early times in their in their in their run of the National League West was a, was a weakness and gradually had become a strength. I think. Hater would have only made that even better. I mean, just imagining a bullpen of, you know, Hater and Dylan Floro and, you know, just the different looks that you're going to be seeing. You're going to be seeing like a righty who's cutting the ball, and then you're going to see 97 to 100 with a with a wipeout slider, which Hater offers. And Hater also one of those rare relievers and that can give you the option of going multiple innings. And especially with the way that pitchers are used nowadays, I think that makes them that much more valuable. I would be scared for the Brewers' sake just to wonder, like, are they just going to wait too long to trade him and his return is just going to further diminish? I personally don't know if they're even a playoff team without him, although they won that division relatively handily in 2021. But he is one of the – just relative to their team because of how they win games, he is arguably maybe, especially with Yelich's struggles, the most valuable player on the team. I mean, and that's maybe – with some hyperbole, but yeah, I mean, he definitely would be a lot more affordable than Freddie Peralta. I mean, $10 million for a reliever is nothing essential, especially when you're talking about somebody of that caliber and his ability to miss bats that he does almost on a religious level. Um, so I'm going to move to the infield real quick. And there's two guys that I was excited to talk about. One comes to mind when I think about the Marlins need to and their yearning that they've said Kim Ang and Mattingly had kind of come out and said like yeah like this offseason we're gonna try and augment this roster and make it better the first guy that I had in mind was somebody who's coming off an off year and I say that in air quotes because even his off year is still almost good enough to be an all-star they just lost their manager in Oakland Bob Melvin is going to San Diego news was reported last week Matt Chapman is kind of been a guy that Oakland has somewhat dangled out there before. I, I, I mean, there have been yeah. some minor talks about him in the trade market. Really, if you think about it, we kind of have like a poor man's Matt Chapman and Brian Anderson. You know, yeah. it's when you talk about good defense and above average offense. But Chapman, who's also a hit in a ballpark in Oakland that doesn't always play well to hitters. You know, he had an off year this year. You know, he had a 100 OPS plus, it was essentially league average, 400, 403 slug, 314 on base. He only hit 210, but, you know, you could throw a batting average at the window. But it's not to forget, he still put up three and a half baseball reference for this year. Still played elite gold glove caliber defense at third base, plus 10 defensive runs saved. 
Oakland isn't a stranger to trading MVP caliber infielders. They traded Josh Donaldson prior to the 2015 season of the Blue Jays. He went on to win the American League MVP. So this wouldn't be that out of the ordinary. I mean, we also have to remember, too, like coming off a somewhat off year for Chapman, his market could be down. So maybe Miami comes in and wows Oakland with an offer. Just given the fact that, you know, Chapman struck out 202 times this year. He, there are some concerns that lie with him. This swing and miss, as I just said, you know, the 200 plus strikeouts is a concern. I believe every year except one, he's had more strikeouts than games played. So swing and miss is definitely a problem. I mean, this year alone, he had struck out in 32.5% of his plate appearances and 26.9%. Overall, for an average, it's about, I believe it's like 23%, 24%. So he's going to strike out an above-average clip. But again, you can take that when you have a career. He's a career OPS plus guy of 120. He, for two years, 2018, 2019, was, almost, was essentially an eight-war player on average. He was 15.5 baseball, 15.3 baseball reference war. Uh He's in the 99th percentile in outs above average, 91st percentile in walks. So he's almost like a better version of Joey Gallo where wherever you play him on the field, the defense is going to be great the way that Gallo's great in the corner outfield spots. Chapman's great at third base. Can even play shortstop a little bit, but I don't want him to, you know, I, I obviously serve him with his shrinks and keep him at third. Yeah. Average, 89th percentile on average exit velocity. Again, he'll walk, but he'll strike out a lot. I think, you know, if, you don't get a guy to say like Chris Bryant, who is going to be a free agent, and we'll probably talk about him later in the show. And, and you know, Chapman is an alternative who I think his upside, especially now given he's around the same age as Bryant, but he's shown in recent years that he can be at times even better yeah. just because of where his ceiling is. I think right now would probably be the best time to kind of pursue a guy like that, especially because you don't know even, you never know what's going on in Oakland, especially with their stadium. Well, I, I think we do know exactly what's going on at this time. He will he will be available. That's the feeling around yeah. Oakland that even if that stadium comes together, they are going to blow it up, you know, within the next calendar year, whether it all happens this offseason or whether they they like draw it out a little bit to include next deadline. They might not be in a rush to blow it up immediately, but he's somebody that they would at least listen on right now because of his proximity to free agency. And the fact that he does, even when he's coming off this off year offensively, he does so much like he works miracles with his glove. It is one of the great defensive third basemen of our era. It's really him and Nolan Arenado, and they are we in both the, league. the same high school, mind you. Exactly. Yeah, I remember yeah, that. I believe Chapman played shortstop while Arenado played third base. Right. So, yeah, I mean, there's obviously a lineage to great defense coming from California where they played. You know, know, it's he's definitely an entertaining name. I don't even know what it would take to get him. I mean, we don't Billy Beans almost kind of even checked out of his duties in Oakland. I mean, there was at one point in the offseason last year, he had signed on to join an organization for it was like minor. It was like a minor league organization that helps secure players pay. And you had to, you know, very complicated thing that we won't even get into discussing here. So. Chances are he's not, I mean, he's not even as involved as he used to be. Oakland's, you know, as consistently successful as they are, there always seems to be some internal fire that needs to be put out. Yeah, they have, as we have reasonable complaints about Marlins ownership, both past and in current, it's nothing compared to the A's. The A's quietly have maybe the worst ownership situation in baseball they just don't invest in their team they make like small issues into big issues like they you got to feel bad for them the fact that they don't even have those at least in the last couple decades they don't have those surprise world series to hang their hats on and they've made a lot out of a little for a few years and they did try to go for it a little bit down the stretch this year and now that didn't work out and they the feeling is that they they're like setting the stage to um to like punt again on the major league product. So it's sad to see. I do think a lot of this would be contingent on what the Marlins, what they have going on with BA, whether it's 
uh, concerns about him being ready for opening day and knowing that they may need uh, someone to just fill a void at third base or whether they're really comfortable with having him try another position, whether that's most likely going back to the outfield somewhere where he did show a lot of promise, even though third base is his best defensive position, or whether they think, um, on the other hand, like in a corresponding trade, they feel that it's time to part ways with him. And Maybe that a they, scenery guy. You yeah, know. so I, I would disagree with that. I hope they don't do that, but I could I could see it happening. I wouldn't be surprised uh, totally in that scenario either. So it, it would have a lot to do with exactly uh, what's going on with B.A. And be, it, because you, you threw his name out here just a few minutes ago, we might as well go into Chris Bryant, who is coming off a 3.3 war season this past year between the Cubs and the Giants. He early in his career, he was with it during his first three seasons in the majors. Like it's no exaggeration to say he was on a Hall of Fame trajectory his first three years. He won rookie of the year easily. He won National League MVP, helped them to the World Series. He was playing almost as well in 2017 as well, but I, I believe that was the first time that he missed some significant time with injuries. So there is a little bit of injury risk with him. He's been banged up a little bit most recently in 2020. He was he was bad in 2020 and he only played half the year and there were rumblings about whether the Cubs might actually just like non-tender him entering this this final year because of how low his stock was at that moment. But he did have a really solid bounce back to become a was he an all-star? Yeah, he was yeah. an all-star selection this past year. Uh, he did tail off a little bit at the very end with the Giants in September, October. He wasn't hitting the same, quite the same way. And overall, I think it is fair to say that he hasn't totally returned to that form he had at the beginning of his career. Uh, so it, it's in a very weird position. So he is he's relatively young for this three free agent class. He turns 30 uh, right before, uh, right after the new year passes. And he'll be looking for, as a, as a Scott Boris client, he'll be looking for a very big deal um, compared to someone like Castellanos. I think when you put them up side by side, Castellanos is coming off the better year overall, but Bryant is just a much more multi-dimensional player and he has the higher ceiling if he does get back to being that player that he was as recently as 2016 2017 he primarily you think of him as a corner infielder or corner outfielder but he can also fake it at at center short field that's <laughs> short shorts off a little bit but more so in, in center field center if you're field, yeah. especially looking at uh this past year with yeah before both before and after the trade he is still really athletic for someone at that stage of his career he still runs well for someone uh in the middle of his career as well i think his his injury issues have been more so to maybe in a shoulder also shoulder, yep. yeah so uh, his athleticism still seems to be uh still there uh, the the floor is pretty high with him the ceiling is extremely high with him and i think the price is going to be extremely high with him someone that will i imagine be looking for a longer deal than even castellanos a five-year deal or a six-year deal i wouldn't totally rule that out you stretch it out long enough and the average annual value comes down just enough that i would probably label Chris Bryant as perhaps the biggest free agent that the Marlins realistically might get. But we're going to talk about some like pie in the sky uh, <laughs> dream dream players on next week's episode for sure. Uh, but if I'm being honest, um, knowing what I, I feel like I know about the organization, this is kind of where I think they'll draw the line in free agency. If there's going to be anybody that they pay a hundred plus million dollars to, it'd be somebody like this that you can put in really like five different positions on the field. We, we spoke with Chris Taylor on the last episode and Chris Bryant to me is like in the super version of Chris Taylor at this point. You don't really think about them in the same category, but to this point in his career kind of um, it's, it's happened very naturally that Chris Bryant has developed this positional versatility and he does it while still hitting for good power that um, could potentially be, even right. more than what he was shown mm-hmm. in the last couple of years. And he's just, there's, yeah, there still is like deep within him a scenario where he returns to being that kind of MVP uh, caliber player. He's, he's worth taking like pursuing all the way to the wire. Uh, will they get him? I think that's unlikely, but he, I wouldn't totally rule him out even being uh, knowing 
the the limitations that Marlins have spending wise. Don't totally rule out Chris Bryant. Yeah, um, I mean, I I personally think when you start, if you're gonna when you're gonna start talking, you know, money as far as what he gets, I the, the number I had in mind was maybe something in the range of like five years, 125 million. And if you really want to get sexy with the numbers, I wouldn't go past, you know, 150 just because there's so many, like, you know, obviously he provides you the ability to play five or so positions, but the one thing, I mean, there's the concerns almost in some way with him. I mean, to be fair, Chris Bryant is one of my favorite players in the sport as a non-objective, you know, opinion, but there's, there are some concerns. I think he's serviceable at every position he plays. I think personally, if you're going to put him in one position for the duration of a season and expect the most out of him defensively, it's probably going to be like left field. Although I do watch him play first base sometimes, and I'm like, you know, like I, he's pretty, you know, again, he's serviceable at every position. But this year he was average to slightly below average in defensive metrics by like total zone and defensive run save. That being said, I still think he's, you know, an excellent player, especially when you talk about the fact that you know, he's putting, he's slugging almost 500, and this isn't even like the Chris Bryant that everybody remembers. He's put getting on base. He gets on base, which is what I love. I mean, we have to, we don't should forget 369 OBP as a rookie. Then it goes gradually up. I believe it's 393 and 16. He wins the MVP. Before he gets hurt in 2017, he has a 400, 403, 404 OBP. So this is a guy who has a track record of making adjustments at the plate, and you know he his ability to get him. It's just another one of those Vegas guys, Harper, Joey Gallo, him that just, they just kind of like know how to hit when they get to the big leagues, you know, Gallo maybe to a lesser degree than the others. The one thing I will say I am really concerned about is the fact that one thing that has remained consistent with Chris Bryant since 2017 is his average exit velocity. And I think a lot of that too comes from his swing. He has a very long swing. Whereas guys like Mike Trout and even in his prime, I got Justin Upton were great hitters and, because they their swings were so short and quick, they were very like, you know, very like fast twitchy, and I. But Chris Bryant's swing is so long that I think it takes away. And since 2017, he hasn't been above the 30th percentile in average exit velo. And a lot of that too is not even just his swing; it's the stance he sets so wide. If you watch him from the right-handed batter's box, he is so wide in his stance that I think he, you know, he has a tendency to get under some baseball sometimes, which can take away from some of that power, you know, even if, you know, launch angle kind of says like you, you swing upper, you know, have an uppercut swing, your propensity to hit more home runs, but Chris Bryant, you know, even if he's a two to three win player, I think, you know, you can't necessarily be that disappointed when you consider the fact that he's going to give guys so much rest, the kind of way, same way we talked about Chris Taylor. And I'm a little less emphatic about Bryant because obviously there is a track record and that goes about two, three years now, excluding this year where you just kind of don't know where he is and where he'll be. You know, perfect scenario, he gets a five-year deal and he's a four- or six-win player for half or two-thirds of that contract. But, you know, he probably is going to cost him about 100, at least 120, 150 million. I mean, I think that's where you start. And, you know, I think any team would be foolish to – put a two in front of that contract that they give them. Right. So the next guy I wanted to talk about, though, is another Oakland A. Um, I know. And again, I know I've kind of beaten the dead horse of starting pitching, but I, I think this, a guy like this can be affordable because he only has one year left until he gets free agency. He was a underdog Cy Young candidate before he got hurt, got hit in the head. And I'm talking about Chris Bassett. Chris Bassett has quietly been among the better pitchers in the sport since the start of 2020. And I have some of the numbers here. 38 games started, a 290 ERA, over 220 innings pitched. And, you know, he's about a league average pitcher when it comes to striking out hitters. I believe this year he only struck out about two more hitters than innings pitched, 159 strikeouts and 157 to third innings pitched. That being said, a 105 whip, you know, the ERA 315. 3.9 baseball reference war was having the best season of his career before he got hurt. And for an Oakland team, again, that we said about when we discussed Chapman, that's kind of in flux where you kind of don't know where they're going to wind up at the start of 2022. 
I don't think Bassett's an expensive option, especially when you consider his age. He's really just 31, 32. And the fact that the team who gets him, should he be traded, and that's sh- and that should, it's a hypothetical at this point, you're only going to have him for one year. But I think he would be a nice kind of like low-cost kind of bargain guy. He does have arbitra- one year of arbitration left prior to free agency, so he probably will cost a little bit more. But that being said, that would possibly make, you know, should a team who acquires him take most of that salary, I think you can get him relatively cheap and – He's not only going to be a league average pitcher for you. He's got the potential to be an all-star. He was last year. That's that's a great one. I had I kind of just scrolled past his name without thinking too closely about it. But the one year of control is just a great sweet spot because it does really drag down the trade value. Yet I think it makes a whole lot of sense for the Marlins, knowing how much starting pitching they have coming, and that they are going to be apprehensive about diving too deep into the free agent starting pitching market. When we talk about somebody like Justin Verlander coming off of Tommy John and being six years older than Chris Bassett, five or six years older, and probably getting a multi-year deal, then the the prospect of trading for Bassett being a, a small fraction of the salary and you know, giving up what will be, I'm sure, multiple decent prospects, but nobody that you really have nightmares about like starring elsewhere that it makes a lot of sense. He, as you said, 3.9 war this past season that would have been over. He would have been outside this, this tier if he had simply not been hit by that freaky incident. And he did come back at the very end of the year, which gives him some closure. This is, mm-hmm. I guess what we talked about with somebody like, like Pablo Lopez that you work your way and you come back at the very end of the year. Uh, not, not quite enough time for you to return to being fully stretched out. And like making a difference, but it gives that player a lot of closure that you can have a normal offseason. He he really is in that nice sweet spot for them. Again, this is a Marlins offseason shopping. We are in aisle four looking at players between three and four war this past season that the Marlins should be targeting this offseason. I I've won. Oh, this is cheating. I'm going a little bit outside our bracket because I don't think we brought up jd martinez on the last show did we and no he finished with exactly 3.0 more last season i bring him up because he's yet another scott boris guy in addition to nick cassianos and chris bryant and i'm sure several others that but i don't think all of them are going to completely break the bank um there's only just so many teams that have this big need for an impact that he technically has one more year of his contract, if he chooses to stick with it, like at 19 and a half million, he's expected to opt out, opt out of that, uh, which is a little bit of a borderline choice, but he is, I think, understandably expecting that a team like the Marlins might be willing to give him a multi-year deal. If assuming there is that universal DH in the new CBA and starting next year, that's kind of my premise is that they are going to have that and hit him more so than, Castellanos or Bryant, it really is contingent on there being a DH because that's mainly what he is. You you put him in left field in an emergency. That would be uh, exactly how the Marlins would manage that. Well, we'd have to see. The He is even more so than Castellanos. He is like a genuine South Florida guy who has spent, I think as long as I can remember, he's spent his like off-season training in Miami and he has a lot of disciples at this point. He's been such a consistently good hitter in the majors now for like eight, nine years that he has a whole lot of disciples that are following after him. He fits that pattern that I've pointed out before of guys who, yes, they were they were terrible in 2020, but they were their usual selves before the pandemic and they were their usual selves in 2021, um, which makes you more comfortable writing off 2020 as a fluke. He is someone that was very outspoken about how important it was to him, him have a specific routine during games, uh, reviewing game video in between at-bats, and due to COVID precautions, they had to get rid of that in 2020, and that messed with him. He couldn't, he wasn't able to like focus the same way that he used to, make the adjustments that he wanted to. And so in that 2020 season, he put up a 680 OPS, which is disastrous if you're a mostly full-time DH but he bounced back this past year, 73 extra base hits. I think he led the American League in doubles. He in led addition to, in doubles. Yeah, in addition to hitting 28 home runs. He, he's just an awesome hitter. 
who's like league average in the strikeout department, but not much more than that. Um, compared to, uh, I'll keep referring to someone like Castellanos, uh, he walks a little bit more than Nick Castellanos does. He's just a more complete hitter. Uh, he, I don't think it's realistic to think he'll like recapture his MVP candidate status just because at this point with his age, that becomes a factor. He's 34, turned 34 in August. And I think it's reasonable to expect a steady decline from this point. He could surprise us. He could be the ne next Nelson Cruz. If you're looking for a candidate that maybe defies this type of that falls in the Nelson Cruz, David Ortiz mold. Uh, that stuff only comes around, you know, once every few years. And maybe JD Martinez is that kind of free, uh, um, amazing hitter that is able to like overcome that. But even if you factor in some decline, um, I would be totally down for a, a big two year deal to have him really solidify uh, the middle of that lineup. I think he's a guy that. And I don't know if you do this too, but when I look at guys and I look at the upcoming free agent market, I see JD Martinez as a guy who will probably sign a little bit later in the offseason because, as you said, he's still a very good hitter despite the off 2020. Every year he's been in Boston, he's been about 30% above league average. He was 126 OPS plus this year, around it was like 140 in that MVP season, if not even better. He's, you know, I mean, 173. So what do I know? 139 in 2019. He has that track record, especially, and he, we talked about Detroit. He hit in Detroit. So there's no expectation that he wouldn't be able to do it in Miami. Definitely a more affordable option than Castellanos because of the age and the fact that, you know, Castellanos, you can play him in the outfield. And while he may not be good, I don't think he'll be as bad as, say, a guy like Martinez would be if he had consistent playing time in the corner outfield spots. But I don't know, like on a two-year, 20-plus million dollar deal, just to have him hitting fourth or fifth in that lineup every day is would be a treat. And I think he would, the way he hit in Detroit, I think he could kind of defy what it means to hit in a pitcher's park and put up big numbers in Miami. You know, and honestly, I, I mean, again, the way I think he signs later, though, is just it's contingent on – does the National League have a universal DH? And if it doesn't, his market, and again, maybe like Nelson Cruz, who I believe will play again next year just because even when he was on the field, he was still an excellent hit offensive player. But if teams will be willing to you know, bring guys like that along if, with all the data that we have now, knowing that they're going to primarily be a DH. I mean, there may be a time where J.D. Martinez would have to play the outfield in an emergency, but his days of starting 40, 50 games in the outfield, I think, are over because of the age, because the metrics have never been necessarily kind to him. Uh, yeah, I mean, he'd be power. It'd be like a much-needed power bat that, again, wouldn't cost as much as Castellanos. I had another guy, though. Joey Wendell with the Rays could be a guy. That makes sense. Yeah. 3.8 baseball reference war last year. He plays all over the infield. I mean, we talked about a guy like Taylor and Bryant who can give you innings at you know third base, the outfield, possibly first base. Joey Wendell plays premium defensive positions in the infield, third base, second base, shortstop. And every single position of one of those positions this year, he graded at above average. And if he and it's not kind of like hyperbole to say that if he plays a full year at say shortstop, which he was he put up six defensive runs saved in like 25 games started at that position. It's not hyperbole to say that he could possibly be a gold glove finalist at all three of those positions. And on top of that, he put up a 741 OPS and that 110 OPS plus did a little bit of power. He had 11 home runs, 54 RBIs, 501 plate appearances. So he's a very interesting player. I think another one of those guys that Tampa just kind of, gives a role to and they're like oh like you know we'll find a way for you to succeed and he has done that for most of his big league career so i like joey Wendell. i think he's even in an, in an emergency situation too he has some experience in the outfield i believe he's got 114 plus innings in the outfield where he you know isn't great the way that he is at those infield positions but can at least give you average defense and let's say left or right field i like joey wendell a lot i and I wouldn't be shocked if the Rays maybe say like, hey, like we can maybe get a decent return for a guy like this. And it wouldn't cost the Marlins as much as it would for, say, Bryant, who 
will cost at least a qualifying offer. Same thing with Taylor, just given the fact that compensation picks will be attached to those offers. I'm a big Joey Wendell fan. I mean, I'm a fan of a lot of what the Rays do, but he would be a nice kind of like accessory piece to have on that roster. Marlins fans should remember him pretty vividly as the guy that derailed the Anthony Bass era before it even started. Well, yeah. exactly as it started. He was the one that hit that home run that blew Anthony Bass's first save uh, in that opening series this past season. Um, yeah, my question with Wendell's how legit the bat is it really did crater after like Memorial Day he hit um what was it most of his home runs in April and May it's six of his home runs in through what the first 50 games that he played and then down the stretch if you go from the end of May to October he had a 660 OPS he wasn't really getting on base or hitting for power down the stretch he, his defense was carrying him the versatility was carrying him and in terms of really affordable, he's a bargain no matter what. In terms of salary wise, he was earning just over two million this year, so he'll earn a raise uh, to a couple million more than that, and then has another year of arbitration eligibility after that. It's, I mean, no doubt that he's 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 going to be pretty valuable in the trade market, but he's in that same sweet spot with some of the other trade candidates we mentioned, where you definitely do not have to give up any of your inner circle top prospects in order to get him. There is a reasonable compromise. And he certainly, if you do have concerns about one of BA or birdie, especially if they have concerns about both of them being ready, then he is a pretty obvious target. I'd have to dive a little bit deeper into what happened with the bat later in the year, early in the season. He was, I think that's people remember the April and may, and that's what drove him to the all-star selection uh, from that point forward, he uh, he didn't do a whole lot to validate that. So I'm I'm intrigued by him. He wouldn't be a big priority for me. I do have one final player that I'd written down, and he's also on the Rays, and his availability is a pretty complex question because of his contract. Their catcher this past season, Mike Zanino, last year put up 3.7 WAR. He was simply one of the better catchers in baseball for someone that had been around a while but had always been off and on and mostly off offensively that it really limited his value. I mean, the most defining characteristic of his major league career is that he, he strikes out so much, so, so much. You have to really develop. Uh, I guess if you're a Marlins fan, you got a little used to it with what Adam Duvall did early in the year, but this is at an even higher clip. It gets frustrating at times. He was able to make up for it this past year because he was one of the preeminent power hitters in all of baseball. He was finally able to really find an approach that worked for him. And he created a, an unusual contract situation for himself because it was originally slated to be a $4 million team option for next year, which for the Rays would be, to me, pretty no-brainer to pick up. But there was incentives in there based on games played that he could earn up to $3 million extra on that club option if he played at least 100 games. And he played 109, which raises the price all the way up to $7 million, which, again, is really good value if you have one of the better catchers in baseball. With the Rays, they have a history of anybody that is in that territory. They are like they do not hesitate to shop you, to sell high on these type of guys, especially if they believe in their internal options and they do have some solid catchers internally and they certainly have the farm system depth to trade for any of their own catchers. So I, yeah, I really don't have a great feel for exactly if they'll pick up the option or if they would trade him, I would lean towards the fact I would say more than 50% shot. He's not on the race next year that they either decline the option or they do trade him, but they pick up the option and then trade him to a team that is not as cost conscious as they are. And so that would be, he'd be on a one-year deal. And as a guy that uh, the career stats really do make you nauseous. He is a 202 career hitter. He is a 274 career OBP. And we've, we've talked about some guys already on lower aisles that have shaky OBPs. And this one kind of takes the cake for being just awful. So you are relying pretty heavily on his home run power. I have a, some faith in that just because of the it's it's not just like wall scraper home runs he has the type of 
really plus plus power that I feel would play anywhere, including at Lone Depot Park. So it's probably not 33 home runs at Lone Depot, but if it's similar playing time, it could be close to 30 from the catcher position. And I I felt we needed to bring up at least one catcher in this episode because that's kind of our quota to bring up one catcher, just knowing yeah. that the Marlins have to turn over every rock to find one. So he, he's a complicated case. I'm sure he's divisive. And um, but if he's available, they they need to at least take a look at it. And I know they were looking at him last year, last year when he was temporarily in free agency, and uh, they didn't quite pull the trigger on that, and they probably regret it. Yeah, I I would have mentioned Wilson Contreras, but that'll probably have to wait for next week, just because he finished at four point one baseball reference war, especially in a year where his offense didn't really do what you kind of expect from him. I mean, he's like an 850 OPS guy at his best. Uh, the last guy I'll mention, and it's funny you mentioned Duvall. I had him on my list as a possible reunion candidate yeah. just because I thought, like, you know, there was a slew of inconsistencies while he was here, and there were times where I watched him, and, you know, his approach absolutely frustrates me because it, if there's one thing I cannot stand. It's just hitters who lack the ability to kind of wait a pitch around and take their walks. Duvall walked 35 times, struck 174 times, but he plays elite defense and he's a global finalist in right field. 281 OBP, 491 slug though. So like Zanino, you're kind of, you know, his skill set is the power and the ability to play elite defense at his respective position. And Duvall did it in left, right, and even at times center field, and he's playing center field for Atlanta now. Three home runs in you know 15 postseason games. So he's shown his ability to hit in the in the postseason. But I'm not going to really spend too much time on him. Uh, the last guy I, I want to talk about, because Miami needs a center fielder, it's no mistake that, you know, we've been – Brian Reynolds is like our big white whale at that position this offseason. Should the Pirates want to dangle him in trade talks? You know, maybe he's a guy that gets moved to the winter meetings. But if you want to go maybe on the more affordable side, because I think this team has the outfield depth to kind of recover from a loss of him, if you want to call it that, Harrison Bader. You know, we've talked about him a lot at times. I think he's an excellent player when he's hitting, and he's not always hitting, so I understand the trepidation that some fans may have with that. But this year, and a lot of this came on late, especially during that big winning streak that they went on the 17-game winning streak near the end of the season that got them into the playoffs and losing that wild card game. You know, he hit 264, 324, 460. While saving 15 runs in center field, I mean, he's probably – other than Kike Hernandez, one of, the, if not the best center field defender in baseball. I mean, you could probably stake a claim for a couple of other guys. I mean, Mookie Betts, when he plays center field, though he's primarily a right fielder, is pretty good in, in center. But Bader, you know, he's a 116 OPS plus guy with elite, elite center field defense. I'm surprised he's never won a gold glove because he's done this before where he's put up. 15 defensive runs saved in center field before he's no stranger to being a wizard with the leather. I don't know what it costs just because I believe he's got two years of club control before free agency. It could be three. So that may make him a little more pricey, but the, in just giving, I think it too takes a lot of pressure off a guy like Brian De La Cruz, who played a lot of center field near the end of the season Though I don't think he's a true center fielder. I think he his bat and his glove profile better in a corner, preferably maybe yes. left. But I think – and then Bader just covers so much ground. He's so fast, too. He's a good base runner. There's a lot of intangibles that he has. 3.9 baseball reference work, so he just gets in. So I, I love him. I think if we don't want to spend the money on a Brian Reynolds in as far as prospect capital is concerned – I think Bader is a slightly cheaper option, and I think he still allows us that flexibility to go out and get a Chris Bryant or a Chris Taylor if we want to entertain guys like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, in a perfect world where there's universal DH and we sign a guy like Nick Castellanos who could be a primary DH, Bader takes that stress away of having to, you know, see Castellanos in the outfield because it gives Jesus Sanchez more time to play. It gives us the opportunity to sign a J.D. Martinez to be our everyday DH. And when he hits, he's an above-average offensive player, and I think that can only lengthen your lineup. Yeah, I did not totally realize how valuable he was offensively this year because I do believe, as I dig into 
the specifics a little bit that he got off to a pretty slow, he got off to a hot start. And then, you know what? He was, he was just better than I realized offensively. I, I knew about the defense. He plays a unique style of defense. He's one of those guys that he gets to his spots so early that he yeah, takes these weird angles to the ball because he's like ready in place. He, he does, he gets the ball so efficiently that it sets him up to make like the best possible throws to the infield. It is on another level, even compared to some of the pretty solid center fielders defensively that the Marlins have had the past few years. This is definitely on another level, just as a lot of these other trade candidates, it's a question of availability, but with anybody that is, we know within two years of free agency, those teams will explore all options. And he may be one of the, the odd men out in with the Cardinals because they, they already have like a solid outfield setup moving forward. Um, and he might be a lower priority. So I would not totally rule that out. And we know that these teams did make pretty substantial trades just a few years ago with Ozuna. So they are not opposed. And they made another one even more recently with Austin Dean. That was a, like a tiny trade as well. There's that relationship there. And that's one thing that I always look at too, when, you know, sizing up the, the possibility of making these trades. As we wrap up aisle four of Marlins offseason shopping, that's Lewis Adio Weiss. I'm Eli Sussman. We still got one more to go. This, this, this is going to be the special one. This is going to be the big bonanza because we'll be looking at all players that were a four war and above this past season. That they'll be those will be the really sexy names. But if we're looking at this tier, as usual, let us know if we overlooked anybody that we should discuss further. I'll provide the links to people so that they could actually see the full list of eligibles that were in this aisle. If we in case we overlooked anybody if you haven't already just listen back to the previous aisles as well one two and three i think overall we've covered probably covered 50 players more than 50 players at this point so we've been pretty thorough and you'll i'm sure you'll find somebody that you you like listening back to those old episodes already keep it locked to this channel again for a special episode that i recorded of the pod with keith law of the athletic that will bring us into the off season so plenty of marlins coverage coming on fish stripes and i'm sure we'll have to at least acknowledge the braves achievement as well this year as we finally reach the end of this 2021 season and look forward to a busy 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 off season thanks as always for listening go fish